the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. In pre-modern days, the most dreaded of diseases was leprosy. It often began with the loss of feeling in your extremities and nodules that would form on your skin and then turn into ulcers. And that loss of feeling would spread. The ulcers never healed. They just spread too. Your hair would fall out. Your eyes would go blind. Ulcers would form on your vocal cords, leaving your voice hoarse and rasping. Gangrene would set in. Eventually, you'd lose toes and fingers, sometimes even whole limbs. Sometimes it led to madness. Eventually, it would lead to death, but not quickly. Some forms of leprosy would take a mere decade to run their course. Others, 20 years or even 30 years. But as bad, if not worse than the physical misery, was the fact that it was contagious. And that made lepers outcasts. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us us that lepers were treated as if, in effect, they were dead men. When a person was diagnosed with leprosy, they were immediately banished from family and community. In Leviticus 13.46, the Lord commanded, He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Cut off, no family, outside the covenant community, the covenant people of the Lord. Imagine one of your biggest comforts in being sick is to have your family there with you, is it not? But imagine being a leper. You lose everything. And people didn't get better from leprosy. If a leper ceased to be unclean, and that had to be verified by a priest, it most likely meant that he'd been misdiagnosed in the first place. In medieval Europe, before he was cast out, a leper was brought to the church one last time so that the priest could read the burial service over him before he was thrown out of town. To be a leper was, for all intents and purposes, to be dead. Not, of course, to yourself but dead to your family, dead to your friends, dead to your community. In Israel, lepers were barred from Jerusalem and from any walled town or city. The law describes over 60 types of contact that would render a person ceremonially unclean. Contact with a leper was second only to contact with a dead body. If a leper so much as poked his head through the door of your house, your house would be rendered unclean. One rabbi boasted that he threw stones at lepers to keep them at a distance. To keep that in mind as we look again at today's gospel. Again, Matthew chapter 8, beginning at the first verse. Matthew writes, When Jesus came down from the mountain... Great crowds followed him. 
And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When Jesus came down from the mountain, that's a reference to the last three chapters, that part of Matthew's gospel that we call the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon in which Jesus preached early in his ministry about the nature of his kingdom about the people who will be part of it. It's a lot of talk. But what does it look like in practice? Because a preacher can say all sorts of good things. A preacher can say all sorts of challenging things. But does he live them out himself? Do his followers live them out? Or does he just tell other people to do that stuff? Maybe even more important, it's easy to hear the sorts of things Jesus said. But what does it actually look like for us to put those things into practice? Last Sunday, we heard St. Paul's exhortation, for example, do not return evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Boy, what does that look like? Do we hear those things and then Like the man who asked Jesus, well, but Jesus, who's my neighbor? Do we go off and find excuses not to do what he said? Imagine the crowd that had been listening to him preach. Now now they're following Jesus down the mountain and into the nearest town. And this leper approaches Jesus. It's not hard to imagine the crowd, or at least many of the people in the crowd, being horrified. Stupid leper, what do you think you're doing? Looking at your neighbor, doesn't that idiot know that he shouldn't be here? He's going to make us all unclean. How dare, how dare he come so close to a rabbi? I mean, these have been people, they've just been hearing Jesus preach about the kingdom at great length. But I expect at least some of them saw the leper and they were thinking to themselves, Jesus is a good rabbi, and if he's a good rabbi, he's going to take this man, or tell this man to take a hike, to obey the Torah and get out of town. Maybe some of them even hoped Jesus might throw a few rocks at this man to drive him off. So imagine their surprise when instead of quoting Leviticus at the man and telling him to get lost, He stops as the man prostrates himself before Jesus. That says something right there. When this leper saw Jesus, he saw the Messiah. Jews did not prostrate themselves before any old person. In fact, the word that Matthew uses here is one that's used by the Greeks to describe kneeling before something or someone representing a god. So the Jews reserved this posture for the Lord. So in some way, shape, or form, this leper saw in Jesus the God of Israel. And prostrating himself, 
he rasps out with his hoarse and damaged voice, Lord, if you desire it, you can make me clean. I know you can. Please make me clean. And to their horror, Jesus then reaches out and touches the man. Now, the law said that a leper could come no closer to a healthy person than a cubit. That's about as far as you can reach with your arm. And Matthew makes a point of describing Jesus reaching out to touch the untouchable, to make contact with the man, to draw in this outcast. And Jesus says to him, I desire just that. Be clean. Now when Jesus reached out, the leper's uncleanness should have passed from him to Jesus. Now that's not something you could see any more than you could see sitting next to someone and getting COVID from them. But everybody knew that that was the law. Ever since the Lord had spoken it through Moses, touch a leper, you become unclean too. So imagine their surprise when they actually did see something happen. But it wasn't what they expected. They saw cleanness pass from Jesus to the leper. Before their eyes, the man was healed. His sores healed and disappeared. His blurry eyes cleared. His rasping voice became whole again. Maybe maybe fingers and toes even grew back. Before the eyes of the watching crowd, the leprosy was gone. The man was restored. His death sentence was lifted. He could be part of the family again. Now, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't just an abstract ethical manifesto that Jesus delivered to a group of people who could have been from anywhere or from any time. It was a declaration that the kingdom of God had come in in fulfillment of the prophets, a declaration that the Messiah had finally come to set God's people to rights. Ever since they had been called in Abraham, ever since they had as a nation been adopted by the Lord as his covenant people, they had, in one way or another, repeatedly failed him and failed to be the people he had called and delivered them to be. They'd given their hearts to idols. They gave their hearts to kings. They put their trust in horses and chariots. They oppressed the widow and the orphan and took advantage of the poor and the stranger. The rabbis threw stones at lepers. The nation had repeatedly, because of these things, had repeatedly known the Lord's discipline. The faithful remnant amongst the people, though, had cried out for centuries to the Lord for help. And through the prophets, the Lord had promised that he would come and he would deliver, that he would forgive, that he would put his own spirit in the hearts of his people 
and turn those hearts away from sin and self and rebellion and fill them instead with love for him and for their neighbors. And now, here it is. Not just preached in his sermon, but when they go down the mountain, they see it in action. There's a reason why we read this gospel during the season in which we recall and celebrate Jesus' epiphany, his manifestation. Jesus has just preached about the restoration of fallen Israel, the adulterous bride to her Lord. And the first person Jesus meets as he heads down the mountain from his sermon, going into town, is this poor man cut off from his people, for all intents and purposes, dead. He has lost his covenant status. He has lost his family, not just his biological family, but his covenant family. He hasn't known the temple or the Passover for who knows how many years. In the Lord's providence, this man comes, symbolic of the nation, symbolic of the people of Israel in their fallen state. Think about it. Israel had not heard the Lord's voice or known his presence in the temple for almost 600 years. She was governed and oppressed by pagans, the same sorts of pagans whose gods and kings she'd once cavorted with. But as he humbled himself so far as to take on human flesh, to be born of a Jewish woman, to become one of his own rebellious people, to reach out, to stretch out to them, just so Jesus now stretches out his hand across the distance between himself and this believing leper, and he makes the man whole. This lost son who was dead is alive again. And Jesus doesn't leave it at that. He sends this man, in accordance with the law, he sends him to see the priest so that the priest can see that he's been healed and so that he can restore him formally to the covenant family, to the people of God. Now, there are other times in the Gospels that Jesus bypassed the temple and the priests in order to make a point. Their days were numbered. God was about to do something new and better. But here in his ministry early on, he instead sends this man to the priests. It backs up the message he had just preached when he said that he had come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And two, it sent a message to the priests of Israel. Like I said, people did not recover from leprosy. If they got better and the diagnosis was lifted by a priest, it was probably because it was never leprosy in the first place. It's likely the priests of that day had never seen a bona fide healing from leprosy. They might talk about Naaman the Syrian, but no one had ever seen anything like that for themselves. And now this man shows up at the home of the local priest, Maybe even the same priest who diagnosed him and declared him unclean and cast him out in the first place. And Jesus, through this man, served a message. The kingdom is at hand. Israel was about to be set to rights and restored. And it was all centered in Jesus, the Messiah. The people and their priests had a choice now before them. Repent and believe in Jesus 
or on the day when judgment would come, find themselves weeping and gnashing their teeth in the outer darkness. Repent and believe that in Jesus the Lord was finally come to visit his people, to answer their prayer, and these lost sons and daughters would be invited into their father's great banquet. Jesus had come to set Israel to rights. Many of the people in the crowd watched this, I'm sure, joyfully. They saw in this healing evidence that backed up the sermon they just heard. The Messiah really had come. That great banquet Israel had been waiting for for centuries. It was being prepared. According to one Jewish apocalyptic tradition, the main course at that great banquet would be Behemoth, the great mythical land monster, and Leviathan, the great sea monster. Some in the crowd, having heard Jesus preach and having seen the leper healed, maybe could already in their minds smell the great beasts roasting in the oven like Thanksgiving turkeys. But then, in the midst of all that excitement, they reach Capernaum, and a Roman centurion approaches Jesus. If the Lord's great banquet was in preparation, this man did not belong there. Like I explained with the children a bit ago, centurions, they, they were the background of the backbone, rather, of the Roman army. There were, at least historically, it didn't always work out in practice, but the name arose because there were 6,000 men in a legion, and then a legion was divided into 60 centuries of 100 men each, and each century, in theory, was commanded by a centurion. So these guys were Rome's best, at least militarily speaking. Matthew doesn't tell us if this centurion was a kind man or a cruel man or how he used his authority. But none of that really matters. He could have been the kindest man in the world, but he was still a local representative of Rome and a Gentile. He did not belong in that joyful messianic throng. But down the main street of the town he came, maybe meeting Jesus and his entourage at the city gate. We continue on in the gospel. Look at Matthew 8, verses 5 to 9. Matthew goes on and says, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So the the centurion appeals to Jesus. Matthew's word choices stress the man's utter desperation. He addresses Jesus as Lord. I mean, he he had surely heard the talk about Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, the Lord, but, but being a Roman, I don't think he really cared about that. He simply knew from the things he had heard that Jesus could heal, that he could fix his desperate situation. He'd heard the stories. Maybe he had even seen the leper running into town to show himself to the priest. 
exactly who or what Jesus was, that wasn't really his concern. He simply saw in Jesus a man with power and authority, a man who could and would, as Tolkien once put it, make the sad things of this world come untrue. And such a man, Jewish or not, Messiah or not, he was worthy of respect. Lord, he says, my my pace is at home, paralyzed, sick, and suffering. Pace is the Greek word Matthew uses. The ESV translates it servant, but it can also refer to one's child, especially to a little kid. And I think that's far more, far more likely what Matthew means in this case. And it explains the urgency and the desperation of the centurion. As Luke and John tell the story, the young boy was near death. But if Jesus could heal others, this man knew he could heal his son too. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And at this point, I think everyone, the centurion, the Jewish crowd following Jesus, everybody just stopped. And maybe some of them even gasped. Now, they shouldn't have, but I'm sure many of them did because that would have been the natural response to anyone when an upright and godly Jew, or a rabbi no less, went to the house of a Gentile. The Mishnah declared in no uncertain terms, the dwelling places of Gentiles are unclean. And even though that came centuries later, we know the Jews of Jesus' day thought no differently. Gentiles were ritually unclean. But everyone present should have known that this was not a problem for Jesus. Jesus touched the leper, the most unclean of the unclean, and passed his purity to him, restoring him to the community, the family of the people of God. Jesus could surely enter the home of a Gentile and do more or less the same thing. And I expect the centurion was shocked by Jesus' offer to come to his house. He refuses, those, uh, he refuses with words so often misused in celebrations of the Lord's Supper, no, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy you should come under my roof. It's not the centurion thought he was personally unworthy, but he knew the Jewish custom. His job was to maintain order in Capernaum, and the last thing he wanted was a ruckus resulting from a popular rabbi coming into his house. People would probably think that he'd forced Jesus, and then people would get angry, and stuff would happen, and, well, that was the last thing someone charged with keeping the peace would want. And so he says to Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. You and I are alike. We both have authority. You know how it works. I have authority over the men in my command. I send orders for this man to come, and he comes. I send orders to that man to go, and he goes. If you truly have the authority over sickness and demons that I've heard you have, you can do the same. If you order this disease to go, that disease will go. If you order that demon to come, that demon will come. Or more likely, he'd order the demon to go, I suppose. Give the orders, Jesus. My little boy will be healed. 
Now it's Jesus' turn to be surprised. Matthew says he marveled. He was amazed at what he just heard. Picking up at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. So notice how Jesus turns from the centurion to the crowd, to his fellow Jews. Here they are following Jesus down the mountain, ready for him to lead them into the age to come when everything will be set to rights, ready to sit in his presence at the great banquet feast, eat behemoth and leviathan. And the parade is stopped by this dog of a Gentile who has no place in that feast. When the day comes, they're thinking the Lord will take care of men like him. He may strut around Capernaum in charge of the place today, but one day he'll be in the outer darkness weeping and gnashing his teeth after the Lord's judgment. Some probably thought and maybe even expected Jesus to give him a little foretaste of that judgment right now. God's promises are not for you. But instead, Jesus turns and he commends the man's faith to everybody. This is why people didn't like Jesus. He contrasts the faith of this Gentile, of a man they thought of as their enemy. Jesus uses it to expose the lack of faith he has seen in Israel amongst his own people. And he quotes from the Old Testament, from Psalm 107.3, from Isaiah 43.5. We read the same thing in Barak 4.37 in the Apocrypha. All these passages speak of the Lord's promises to restore scattered Israel, bringing her lost sons and daughters from east and from west. Israel was scattered. The Lord would bring his children together. But here Jesus puts a twist on those prophecies and promises. When Israel is restored, he's saying, when you sit at the Lord's great feast with your fathers, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when you feast on behemoth and Leviathan and celebrate your restoration and the great faithfulness of the Lord, your brothers and sisters from east and west will be there, and this man represents them. Yes, the Lord will bring Jews from east and west, but he'll bring others, and they too will have a share in the Lord's new covenant and in the age to come. And many of those who think that by birth alone they have a right to be in that banquet, well, some of them will find themselves out in the dark, weeping and gnashing their teeth. Not this man, but some of you. Jesus knew that it wasn't yet time for the Gentiles to come flooding into the kingdom, to come taking hold of the robes of Jews like Zechariah had prophesied and saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. But in this centurion, he saw a foretaste of that day not so far off. It was a promise most of his fellow Jews had forgotten or maybe deliberately ignored 
so they could focus on the promises of the great banquet and the setting things to rights and the restoration of Israel. But this was the reason for Israel's existence as a people, even if few people remembered it. Simeon was one of those who remembered, and having met the infant Jesus at his presentation in the, in the temple, Simeon sang those words, Let now thy, Lord, now lettest thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which, has, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of thy people Israel. Jesus would be the glory of Israel in that he would fulfill their mission to be a light to the nations, bringing them to the God of Israel. And in that, he would fulfill the law and the prophets and manifest the faithfulness of God. Again, that great theme of epiphany. So Jesus commended the centurion's faith and sent him home to his healed little boy, the first fruits, at least after a fashion at any rate, the first fruits of those nations who would see the faithfulness of, God, of the God of Israel manifest in Jesus and come to him in faith to give him glory and would themselves not only be healed and set to rights, but incorporated into this covenant community as sons and daughters of God, seated someday at that great banquet to feast on behemoth and leviathan because they saw in Jesus the one true God, the one whom their gods simply could never compete with. And so they came and brought him glory. So, brothers and sisters, come this morning to the Lord's table. In the bread and the wine, we recall and participate in the great exodus that Jesus wrought at the cross. Here at the table, we remember and are assured that we belong to him. Here we take hold of his blood-stained robe and say, Take us with you, for we have heard that God is with you. At the table, the veil is lifted on the age to come as Jesus gives us a foretaste of the great banquet that awaits us one day when he will finally and once and for all set us and all of his creation to rights. In the meantime, friends, take the grace you have found at his table, take it out into the world, and live it for everyone to see. Take the good news of Jesus crucified and risen with you and proclaim it to all as sons and daughters of God. You are stewards of the gospel. Let every day be epiphany. Make the gospel, make the life of Jesus in the Spirit manifest, make it known in what you do and what you say so that the people around you will say, take us with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Make the gospel, make the life of Jesus and the Spirit manifest in what you do and what you say so that people around you, like that Roman centurion, will come and believe in the Messiah.
Let's pray our collect again. O God, you know us to be set in the midst of so many and great dangers that by reason of the frailty of our nature we cannot always stand upright. Grant to us such strength and protection as may support us in all dangers and carry us through all temptations. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.